So our first reading is from Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And our second reading tonight is from Romans chapter 11, from verse 33 to 36. Romans chapter 11 from verse 33. O the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reese will now come to preach for us. Thanks, Reese. It's uh, great to be with us tonight, wherever you are. I remember ascending the hill. It was about five in the morning. And I'd been walking for three days towards my destination. And there it was, in the morning light, looking down on Machu Picchu. And I did something that I don't do very often. <gasps> I gasped. It was a spectacular scene, and no less spectacular for having walked three days to get there. It was an awesome moment, a moment filled with awe. It's often like that when you go hiking. I remember being once at Wilson's Prom, hiking with some Christian and non-Christian friends when we arrived at a very high point seeing along the coast and one of my non-Christian friends said, wow, this is what it's all about. A non-Christian awestruck by the magnificence of the creation. But being awestruck by the world is actually something that doesn't come naturally. We have to learn it. I remember some friends who had a child with a learning difficulty who found it really difficult to appreciate beauty and to express it, was trying to train their son in how to do this. When crossing a bridge one night at sunset, their son saw the beautiful light and called out from the back seat of the car, how fantastic is that sunset? 
and his mum and dad in the front seat of the car began to cry. Their son had learned something so important for life and emotional health. Being awestruck is something so important to our own lives as human beings and as Christians. So how wonderful it is that tonight we get to look at these few verses from the end of Romans 11 and practice being awestruck. Learn again how to be awestruck, which will be such a gift for our Christian discipleship. Being awestruck might be harder than we realize, but more important than we think. If you've been tracking with this sermon series from Romans 9 to 11, you'll know that Paul has been explaining how it is that God can be sovereign and human beings responsible how God's election and our faith work together, how God creates a church comprising both Jews and Gentiles. He's explained these extraordinarily important ideas in these few chapters, and now he bursts into rapturous praise. It's like reflecting on these chapters takes his breath away. So in verse 33, he strings words together to cumulatively impact our emotional lives. And these are words that would have been used frequently by his Jewish listeners. They knew these words from the Old Testament. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God is so magnificent. He's so beyond comprehension. His paths often don't seem to work until we can get his perspective on life and the world. His paths from our perspective are untraceable. In fact, a few verses earlier in 11.25, Paul has described the very arguments he's been outlining as a mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, he writes in 11.25, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. This is a mystery. This explanation of God's purposes for history is not easy to understand, but that doesn't mean that Paul is depressed or resigned or fatalistic. In fact, just the opposite. God's plans are so magnificent that he can do nothing else other than praise. Talking about God's sovereignty and our place in it doesn't lead him to fatalism, doesn't lead him to resignation, doesn't lead him to fear, but to joy. We can confidently praise God for his judgments and his ways. Picking up some of the themes from Romans 9 to 11, we can confidently praise God that he's given the gift of glory, the gift of covenant, the gift of the law. He's given his promises. We can praise God that he had power over the Pharaoh. We can praise God that he saved a remnant. 
We can praise God that we're chosen by grace and praise him that beautiful feet have brought us the good news. But it might be that when Paul gets to these verses at the end of Romans 11, he's not just reflecting on God's ways in these few chapters. More likely, he's reflecting on the whole book of Romans. Indeed, in the very next verse, Romans 12.1, Paul describes God's mercy, which should lead to us offering our bodies as living sacrifices, in view of God's mercy, is probably taking in chapters 1 to 11, not just 9 to 11. Paul appeals to us by the mercy of God, meaning the whole book of Romans. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, we can confidently praise God that we've been made right with him and have received his peace that we've been united with Christ and have received his purpose, that, we've, that we have life in the spirit and we can live with God's power at work. The very power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. Paul is wanting us to reflect on the arguments of Romans 9 to 11, but broader than that, the arguments of Romans chapters 1 to 11 and trying to draw us into his own wonder. Now, some people see Romans as a book of systematic theology. But we can see from these verses that Paul thinks his job in Romans is more than merely instructing the mind. He's training our heart as well. Hanley Moore, who was Bishop of Durham, wrote, Beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheologically devotion. For being a healthy Christian means making our head and our heart meet, using our mind and cultivating our emotions. That's been Paul's intent in Romans. So we have to ask the question, which do you do better and which do you need more practice in? Instructing your mind or cultivating your emotions? And indeed, learning to do both at the same time. Paul is ending chapter 11 with this confident call for us to join him in being awestruck. He wants us to be confident in taking the themes of the scriptures for ourselves. But... We can be confident, though he doesn't want us to be arrogant. We are still creatures. God is still the creator. He reminds us of just this status in verses 34 and 35. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? 
He wants us to trust in the one God, despite the fact that our circumstances might make that trust difficult. This is a verse from Isaiah 40, verse 13, where God is calling on his people to trust him, even though things aren't going so well for Judah. Or verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Do we owe God anything, Paul is asking? He's the creator and he he owns everything anyway. And if you are Israel listening to this verse, you'd be reminded of Job 41 verse 11. Where Job is being confronted with the creator's power despite the ambiguity of his circumstances. Israel has no claim on God. They don't have prerogatives just because they're his nation. Israel has to receive God's mercy just like Gentiles do. We should, we must praise the creator for his works in the creation And we should also praise the creator for his ultimate judgments at the end of history. Paul has been taking us to that final destination in the course of these chapters. And we've learned from Psalm 98 that God wants to bring his justice to this world. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. A beautiful summary of his own aspirations in the civil rights movement. But Romans 1 to 11 reminds us of something even bigger, that the ultimate reason for being awestruck as we contemplate God's providence, God's purposes in history, is not just that we might praise him for his justice, but that we might praise him for our justification, that he's made us his sons and daughters, that he's chosen us, that he's adopted us. We know that the goal of history is certainly justice, but beyond that, for us as believers, to meet the Lord Jesus face to face, to dwell in his presence forever and ever. Paul, in reflecting on these great purposes of God, gets to the end of chapter 11, verse 36, and says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Beyond justice for the world and our justification lies God's own glory. The ultimate goal of all we are and all we will see. Well, I've been helping us to reflect on these few verses from Romans 11 to give us reasons for being awestruck. It's worth taking a few moments, though, to remember what are impediments 
What stops us from cultivating this kind of attitude of our heart? It's one thing to follow along Paul's argument, perhaps even to reflect some of his emotions. It's quite another to take a step back and examine our own hearts and ask the very important question, what stops us from being awestruck when we contemplate salvation history? Is it our pride that we're used to working things out? That we're used to being able to explain things? Some of us can't accept something until we've got a rational explanation of it. But I think these verses are saying it's okay not to know everything. If pride is getting in the way, repent of it. And let yourself be given over to praise of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be that an impediment for you is not pride at trying to understand everything, but rather suspicion that such an extraordinary gift would be given to you. Why would God give such a great gift to me as a sinner? Well, these chapters have gone some way to explaining that. That's the whole point of a gift, that we don't deserve it. It's not just for the elite but for anyone who places their trust in Jesus Christ. Or, if pride or suspicion aren't your besetting sin, perhaps it is that you are cynical like many in the West. We're prone to seeing the cost of everything but the value of nothing. And this is especially the sin of old guys like me where we're so used to the things that we've read in the scriptures that we don't take delight in new discoveries. We're more practiced in seeing the downside than reminding ourselves of the glory of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Or if pride, uh, suspicion and cynicism aren't describing you, perhaps it's simply that you're ignorant you're lazy in not meditating on the scriptures and tracking with God's extraordinary purposes which have been laid out for us there. How inscrutable are his ways? We need to keep reflecting on them and not just take for granted that you've heard that before. For from him and through him and to him are all things. We need to keep reminding of ourselves of our place in that plan. Friends, I've tried to give you reasons for being awestruck and outlining just a few impediments as well. Perhaps talk to a friend who you'd like to, to explore with what might stop you from tracking more spontaneously with Paul's words here we do need to practice being awestruck it's not something that will come easily it might be relatively easy being awestruck seeing Machu Picchu for the first time or a view of the ocean 
Yes, of course, these aren't wrong things to do. But Paul is calling us to something greater. Not just praising God for the creation, but praising God for the story of salvation history. Perhaps not as easy as we think for to praise God for the story of salvation history is first of all, of course, to see ourselves as creatures and not the creator and give in to God's inscrutable ways that we can't, in the end, understand entirely. But more than that, to see ourselves as God's chosen, God's adopted sons and daughters through the risen King, Jesus Christ our Lord. How healthy it is for us to make our head and our heart meet. How healthy it is for us to practice being awestruck, for which these verses in Romans give us some clues. Let me pray. We ask you, God, uh, to refresh our heart so that we might sing a new song. We ask you, God, to train us in being awestruck. Please help us to practice the postures of the heart that will enable us to do this spontaneously and regularly and generously. We ask, Heavenly Father, that this very week we might examine our hearts and discover the ways in which these kinds of practices are impeded. Please give us a fresh vision of you, Lord Jesus, that we might orient all our lives, heart, mind, soul and strength, towards your great glory. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.